All right, Jesse, last week had some seriously memorable characters. What do you have for me this time? A romance between the heiress daughter of a billionaire international arms dealer and a talented Argentinian polo player comes to a shocking and fatal end when one lover murders the other. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty thoughts, evil plots, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome to Jamie B. and Shannon B., Farah N. and Jennifer G., and Melissa M. and Kelly D. Hi, Yay. everyone. I saw actually a really cute review that said something about how we just seem so excited to be doing this podcast. And it's so true. Just every episode, every day is a gift, guys. And thank you so much for listening so that we can keep doing this together. Totally. I was ruminating on how it took us five months to get to 100 ratings on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. And it was right around Christmas. And I was like, we did it! Ah! It was a fun way to celebrate together, though. <laughs> it was, yeah. And now it's like we're creeping up to almost 2K. Just I think we need like 150 more or something. Which is insane. Which is insane that it took us five months just to get 100. And here we are. But it really is like still like the first time. Like every review we're so excited by and every new patron. So thank you guys so much for allowing us to do this thing that we love doing. So today is a very interesting case, Andy. It's like pizza, but really fancy pizza. It's like the artisanal, like wood-fired with some like shaved truffle pizza because okay, it's so about rich people. Okay, the truffle. I'm feeling you. I was like, when you first said fancy pizza, I thought maybe like hot honey. It could be hot honey. Maybe hot honey is your truffle. Hot honey is my truffle. <laughs> yeah. Whatever makes you elevates your pizza is what I want you to imagine going into this story. Although with this setup, it should be about chefs. It's not. It's not about cooking at all. It's just about rich people doing rich people things and, of course, a love murder. On September 7th, 1997, a troubling phone call came into 911 dispatch at 8.51 in the morning. The person on the other end of the line reported in an accented voice, curiously devoid of emotion, that someone had been shot. The dispatcher, a man named Michael Zietz, was new on the job, and he was not familiar with the address that was given. To be fair, the address given wasn't one that the police were routinely or ever had been summoned to. It was one of the many lushly acred estates that sat discreetly down gravel roads and large fences. The kind that belonged to the moneyed millionaire and billionaires 
of Virginia's Hunt Country resided, where there were more pedigreed horses than humans, although the humans were pretty pedigreed as well. Yes. The estate in question that morning was Ashland Farm. It belonged to an international arms dealer and former CIA agent named Sam Cummings. Sam resided now in the south of France, while his twin daughters, Deanna and Suzanne, occupied the estate. Another frequent visitor was Suzanne's lover, a charming Argentinian polo player by the name Roberto Viegas. The charismatic and popular player from humble beginnings seemed to have little in common with the shy, introverted, and strange heiress. They had horses and polo and eventually passion, but when that passion erupted into fatal gunfire on an early September morning, the police would be left to determine the truth about what happened and having to decide whether they could trust the claims of the survivor. Today, it is all about money, privilege, and power, which is actually also a great Dominic Dunn TV show that does indeed have an episode on this case, as well as the themes of love, violence, and jealousy. I also read a book by Lisa Pulitzer, whose title I will give you at the end. It gives like a little something away. I love it when you do that. I you know. So it's Lisa Pulitzer is the author of the book we're going to be talking about. And I will give you the full title. At don't the end of the Google, guys. <laughs> I'm going to put it in the show notes. So don't look at the show notes. Just click on the episode. <laughs> yes. There was also a great article from Vanity Fair, March 1998, called Love's Deadly Harness by Judy Backrack. And there's also an episode of Vanity Fair Confidential that was under the same name. And Judy Backrock, the writer and the editor, is on the episode. And she actually interviewed a lot of people that were involved directly in this case. Cool. Also, Andy, while I was sitting down to write this episode, I realized it's our I Love You episode because it's 143. Oh, wow. I didn't do it on purpose. I was just like, I handwrite all my scripts. And I was writing ep 143 on it. And I was like, aw, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so with that cheesy pronouncement behind us, let's move on to discuss the billionaires, if you will, <laughs> Suzanne Cummings. I mean, the name just screams rich. Yes. And her name is spelled like Susan, really. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. And her sister, Deanna is actually, it looks like Diana, like Princess Diana. We're going to get into it, but they were raised in Monaco. So that could have something to do with the pronunciation here. She and her sister, Diana, were born into the lap of luxury in Monaco on July 21st, 1962. <laughs> Their father, Sam, was an international arms dealer, originally from the United States. Got it. Yeah. We're going to get into him because he's fascinating. And their mother was a Swiss accountant named Ermgard, otherwise known as Irma. So Sam Cummings' rise to success is really fascinating. He was definitely from an entrepreneurial family. His dad actually made a fortune in the 1920s selling bottled mineral water. So very ahead of his time. Yep. And when the market crashed in 1929, it was Sam's mother who actually saved the family financially by restoring and flipping properties. Wow, okay. And she would get some sort of grant from the government to do so. So she was really, really smart. And she actually had her eyes on all of the markets, what was going on in the world, how it was going to affect their business constantly, even to the point where I think they were up near like the Brooklyn area 
And when World War II was kind of about to break out or was breaking out globally, but it looked like the United States was going to get involved, she actually moved the family down to Washington because she was like, that'll be the one area where people will be moving to and still employed. Okay. So she was very, very bright. Sam had a lifelong obsession with firearms. It was just a really interesting passion. Like he liked the history of it. He liked understanding everything about different firearms and why they fired the way they did, why they looked the way they did, why they were created, where they had come from. So he was like the type of kid that could tell you everything about antique muskets to modern gigantic weapons. Clearly, I don't know a ton about weapons, but he he knew. I'm like, those big weapons, the gigantic uh, one. <laughs> he just knew everything from modern to old, everything. And that interest only deepened when he served in World War II. So after the war ended, Sam went to Georgetown on the GI Bill. And after graduation, he was enlisted by the CIA to covertly buy firearms from foreign countries. Wow. Yeah, they were interested in Sam for his weapons knowledge. And he actually brought them the idea of going on a secret mission because when he was at Georgetown, he had gone back to Europe in the wake of World War II recovery. And he said that there were especially German weapons just everywhere. Like you'd be driving down the countryside and there was just abandoned firearms and tanks and everything. And he just could not believe that this stuff was just lying around. So he went to the CIA and he's like, look, we got to get this stuff. We got to get all the weapons everywhere. And I know everything about, especially the stuff over there. So what I think we should do is have me pretend to be a Hollywood producer who knows nothing about firearms at all and just go over there and say, oh, I'm making a movie. We're making World War II movies. We need it to look realistic. How much can we get for a whole barrel of this stuff? Genius. Genius. Yeah. And it totally worked because he knew exactly what he was buying and he knew exactly how much it was worth, but he just pretended. Undercut. Yeah. Undercut everything. Yep. Wow. That's genius. Yep. The mission was very successful. And Sam stayed with the CIA for a couple more years. We don't know exactly what he did on subsequent missions, but I think he went to other countries and did some sort of similar type thing. So funny. Yep. And then after a couple of years, he ended up branching out to start his own international arms business with the blessing of the United States government. And by now, I think he had contacts also internationally. So he was skirting by a lot of regulations that a normal person, you know, your everyday international arms dealer could not get by. Yeah. Sam was very smart and very morally dubious. He ended up hoarding nearly a million firearms before the passing of the 1968 Gun Control Act that said that you could not import foreign arms. So he put them in this gigantic warehouse and then he would put an insanely inflated price on them to sell them to collectors. Okay. So he was making crazy bank at this point. He also sold weapons by the boatload to some seriously bad dictators in Haiti Dominican Republic, and even Fidel Castro in Cuba. Well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's not, he's a smart guy who makes a lot of money. I don't think we should uh, uh, lionize him at all. Yeah. All arms dealers, I think, have to be smart <laughs> in some way, but it's just not what I, I could not, not 
marry one. It's not what I hope my child will yes. grow up to be. No. Like on her kindergarten <laughs> piece of artwork. She's like, when I grow up, I want to be an international arms dealer. It's like, no, no, thank you. So yeah, Vanity Fair reported that Sam gave all of his best customers, including the Sultan of Brunei, gold-plated Walther pistols, which was a German type of firearm, I believe, and it was his favorite. So you can probably imagine, Andy, that Sam was already a fairly wealthy guy when he married Irma after meeting her in a Geneva hotel. So after the couple married, they moved to Monaco, home of the famous Monte Carlo Casino. Also, this place is just like indescribably beautiful. Oh, I can't even imagine. Tons of like opulence. And of course, we all know that that's where Princess Grace Kelly ended up. So it's like Monaco is its own country, but it's basically like in the south of France, guys. And I remember being a student and traveling on the train and going to the south of France and like waking up like as the train came into like Monaco and you're like on these like cliffs and the ocean is just like so, or I guess sea, I think it's a sea there. It's like glittering blue. It's just gorgeous. So this place is just heaven on earth here where these these girls were. I mean, I guess heaven on earth if you have lots and lots and lots and lots yeah. of money. Yeah. <laughs> so daughters Deanna and Suzanne were born in 1962 and they grew up in a grand 14 room apartment with sweeping views of the Mediterranean and their own private beach. In the sweltering summer months when tourists crowded the locale, the family would escape to their Swiss chalet in the mountains. This is just Fancy. a lifestyle, yeah, that none of us can really imagine. You're like, it's more than the 1%. This is the 0.1%. Deanna and Suzanne were very well educated and extremely close, even by twin standards. They spoke English, French, and German. And even after moving to the United States and living there many years, Suzanne would maintain this vaguely French, kind of German, just general European accent. The girls also spoke a secret twin language with one another. I guess this is common in some twins that as children, they kind of develop their own fully functional secret language. I'm sure. Yeah, which is so interesting. As close as they were, the fraternal twins were almost nothing alike, both in looks and personality. Well, Suzanne was a thin, introverted brunette Diana was a beautiful, outgoing, popular blonde who attracted attention wherever she went. When the twins attended Swiss boarding school, Diana also proved herself to be more adept both academically and socially. Now, you'd think that this would lead to some sort of rivalry or resentment, at least on Suzanne's part, which maybe it did. We'll never know for sure because the twins are extremely close, but at least to outsiders, it seemed like Diana just got more protective, even more loyal and loving towards her sister versus going out and doing her own thing. So she wasn't like, I'm the popular one who cares about Suzanne. It was the more that people liked her, the more she sought to include her sister, who Suzanne just really wasn't that type either. She didn't really necessarily want to be included. She liked being at home with her own interests. But Diana was fiercely loyal to her, absolutely. And Lisa Pulitzer also points out that it seems like there was a lot of guilt maybe on Diana's part that she was the more socially beloved twin or the one that got so much attention all the time. And she seemed to try to give back to her sister in numerous ways, like she would do anything for her, including 
even after they they both went to college in the States and then eventually moved into their father's multi-million dollar estate in Virginia. And when they did that, Deanna ended up moving into a very modest guest house that was on the property. Well, Suzanne was the one who got the 8,500 square foot sprawling mansion. Jesus. Yeah. Because the heiresses were obscenely wealthy, they did not have to work. And instead, they just got to follow their passions, whatever that may be. And both of the women's passions lay with animals, especially horses and equestrian pursuits. Deanna participated in steeplechase events and fox hunts and was particularly adept at navigating the high society that patronized these types of events in this sport, especially. She was popular among the horsey set. She dressed in designer clothes. She was always dripping with jewelry. She just knew what the latest fashions were. And she just had this, you know, joie de vivre about her. People wanted to be around her. They invited her to all of their events. But the same could not be said for her sister. Many of the society set found Suzanne's habit of avoiding eye contact and unwillingness to make conversation off-putting. Suzanne wasn't much interested in attending these parties anyway. While she participated in equestrian events like jumping, dressage, and eventually polo, Suzanne refused to participate in fox hunts due to her love of animals. Aww, a woman after my own heart. It's interesting that Suzanne wasn't more academic considering she was, like, so introverted. I'm going to get into it later, but I do think that she may have been neurodivergent, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But if she had been able to go for a career, which, I mean, she was able to, I'm sure, or if she had the interest or maybe it was the grades, I'm not sure why, she probably would have been a vet because she would have been a great veterinarian. She was absolutely passionate about animals of all kinds. And apparently she had this big old house and people said that it was very bizarrely furnished as in there was almost nothing in it. And she had millions and millions of dollars. So there's no reason why this huge mansion should go so undecorated. And then she just filled it with rescue animals, specifically cats. She does seem like a cat person, though. Yes, she does seem like a cat person. So I guess her habit was like just going on down to the SPCA and seeing what was around. So she had over two dozen cats in her house, Andy. It's like the lady in Puss in Boots. Okay, I haven't seen the most recent installment of Puss in Boots. Sorry if I'm out of the loop. There is a cat lady who takes in cats and the city like comes after her and they want to like do inspections and checks on her but she like just takes in all the kitties so it's like I feel like once you pass the threshold of like double digits it doesn't really matter <laughs> okay you say that and you know in this case she's very wealthy she's it's got an a lot of room square foot house like yeah there's a lot of room, of room for these these cats to travel although I, I can't imagine that there weren't like roving bands of wild gangs of cats that are like having rumbles in the halls of this fancy mansion because that is a lot of cats to just kumbaya get along. <laughs> yeah, but it's 8,000 square feet. Also, I don't trust anyone, I'm sorry, that has like <laughs> double digits of cats. Like, yes, maybe in this circumstance she has the room for it, but like you see those hoarding shows where they like have so many cats, they lose like track of them and then they get like crushed to death under garbage. Yeah, but you can keep track of 10 cats if your house is clean. <laughs> Andy, Andy's the... I'm sorry, you can. But then like once you go to 11, you might as well have like 27 of them. 
So I get, I understand where she's coming okay, from. Okay, as long as you're getting all these cats fixed, because yeah. then the next thing you know, you got a hundred cats. She has to be. This she's is... going for a stroll to the SPCA. Yeah, every she's getting weekend. them from the SPCA. But she also, she got some abused dogs too. She was actually very caring. A lot of the animals that she rescued were the ones that had been abused. Cute. Yeah. I mean, there's a dog in the house in Puss in Boots, too. There's a dog that's dressed as a cat. Andy, this is not about Puss in Boots. This episode is not about Puss in Boots. Stop bringing it back to Puss in Boots. So Suzanne was also said to turn down social invitations when she did receive them so she could stay at home and watch Animal Planet, which was allegedly playing on a television set in her home 24-7. Okay. Did the animals like it? Was it, like, for them or? No, it was. For her, that's what she liked. There was something very childlike about Suzanne and her interests. There's pictures of her bedroom in the Vanity Fair article and on the show Vanity Fair Confidential. And her bedroom was covered with daisy-patterned wallpaper and tons of stuffed animals. She's in her mid-30s, I believe, at this point, early to mid-30s, around the time that we'll be discussing. And it looked a lot like a young girl's bedroom. And she was also said to eat the same thing over and over again, specifically overcooked spaghetti was her dish of choice. So it was a lot of like overcooked, I guess, really soft. That would be my guess. They said it's specifically overcooked. I mean, that's unhinged to me. I'm an al dente girl. (laughs) You're like, yeah, have 30 cats, but oh my goodness, soft pasta. That's where I draw the line. Again, like, so we're getting back into, like, I am not a doctor. I'm not a professional. And the book that I read actually said nothing about this, but it was also published in 1999. But I was curious to look up signs that somebody might be on the autism spectrum. And according to the National Autistic Society, it did seem like Suzanne had a, a lot of these indicators. She didn't make eye contact. She had social communication difficulties. There was repetitive and restrictive behavior, like doing the same things and eating the same food every day, as well as highly focused hobbies or interests, which was her interest in animals and equestrian pursuits. And just in general, she didn't really care about anything else. But so, yeah, this is not a diagnosis, guys, and I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I thought it was worth noting because going forward, I do think that a lot of people described Suzanne as strange or weird or off-putting, especially when it comes to reading social cues. And they kind of made these statements like it was like a judgment. They're making a judgment against her. And so I wanted to like just put this into your heads collectively, maybe just in case so that we can understand that maybe she was just misunderstood. Totally. Yeah. Nothing that I read or saw was about this, but I'm like learning about this person. I'm like, I just feel like there might be something more going on here. And people are kind of making a rush to judgment. I mean, that's a lot of signs pointing in that direction. Yes, exactly. And again, this book came out in 1999. This case takes place in 1997. And women, especially women and girls who are on the spectrum go undiagnosed the most because a lot of times they're fully functioning in other ways and they're just overlooked. So anyways, it was worth saying. We'll see how this plays out. So we're going to now jump into one of these situations that maybe she just misread some social cues. Suzanne got really into polo and she got especially into her polo instructor, an Argentinian man named Jean-Marie Turan. Now, Jean-Marie agreed to instruct Suzanne, but he soon found that she was interested in more than just the lessons. 
Suzanne started hanging around the barn from dawn to dusk on the days that John Marie worked, but there was two days a week that he did not work at this particular polo field, and she did not come in on those days. So he was beginning to feel like she was just kind of hanging around for him. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, if there was like a conversation she could bring up. And then he started teaching at another polo school on those two days that he was off, and she started going to that polo school. Yeah, so she's not being discreet. No, not even a little bit. And the one that he worked on on the weekends was, I think, a half hour away from where they both lived. And so she then started saying, well, we both come the same way. Maybe I should just drive you. Do you want to ride? And he said no for a while. And then eventually he was kind of like, well, I'm exhausted. Like he's doing a lot of polo. He's like, maybe this will be a good chance for me to get a nap. Like she can drive and I'll get like 20 minutes of sleep on my way. And this could be a good thing. And he offered to like pay her some gas. But she was like very off-putting to him and was a little forward, but not in a typical way. Like she wasn't like physically coming on to him. She wasn't like touching him or anything. She was just like suggesting that like maybe they could go together to Florida for the winter polo season. She was like, I'll pay for a trailer for your polo ponies. Maybe we could get an apartment together. And he did not have this sort of relationship with her. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I don't think so. No, that's not how it goes. And also she was suggesting it in a very familial way that was almost romantic versus there are such things as sponsorships. If you want to play on a polo team and have an expert play with you, a pro, then you have to sponsor them. You have to pay for their trailer. You have to give them a stipend. You have to make sure that they have a place to stay, all this stuff. But she wasn't suggesting it like that. She was suggesting it like they were going to go together as a couple almost. And he was not interested in this. So he very firmly shut her down. And he did have a girlfriend. So he also made that clear. But if it wasn't enough that she was just going to every single one of his classes, she soon started going out at night and following him and his girlfriend. So if they went to like a bar or restaurant, she would magically end up there at some point and just stare at them from across the room. It's getting a little creepy. It's getting creepy. It's going from I'm not quite understanding that this person isn't interested in me to full on stalking. At this point, his girlfriend's getting mad because she's like, why is this woman who's your client here all of the time? Why is she like following us around? She like hiding in the like fake bushes at the restaurant or is she? Just I think she's like straight up sitting at the bar staring at them, like not even trying to hide it. That's what it sounded like. Whoa. Yeah, and it didn't sound like she was really, like, playing it off, like, oh, I ran into you. You need social skills to do that, though. Yeah, it sounded like she'd just show up and just stare and not even get up and say hi or anything. What did you guys order yeah. today? No, she wasn't. I don't even think she was, like, talking to them. She'd just, like, sit there and stare. So, yeah, this whole thing was very uncomfortable for Jean-Marie. And so he was relieved to find out after a little while that Suzanne had taken up with this Mexican stable hand. So this guy who was like basically a horse groom and he came from Mexico and he was like, good, I'm glad that she found somebody else that she likes. And I guess they dated for a little while. But Jean-Marie reported that he was kind of surprised when he found out that it was the barn worker who had ended the fling with the fabulously wealthy heiress. And so he ended up talking to the guy who had dated Suzanne and asked him like what happened in their relationship. 
And I guess this guy said that he just couldn't stand being with Suzanne because she would do stuff like talk about her money or say like her father had transferred like $2 million or $5 million to her. But then she like wouldn't pay for dinner. Or if she was paying for dinner, she would say like, oh, well, I can't get you that steak. But if you want to order a side salad, I'll order that for you. That shit would drive me insane. <laughs> this, this guy is like, uh, I make like so little money, like mucking out stalls. You're taking me to this fancy place and you're talking about millions of dollars that you have. And yet you're like not willing to pay for dinner. Or if you are willing to pay for dinner, you're like, uh, yeah, you can order from the appetizers or salads list, but not the entrees. This is also another thing. Like Suzanne is notoriously cheap. She's very, very, very frugal. Well, she doesn't work. There's no income. No, but her dad has so much money. I know, but if you like, you, that well could run out whenever. It's not like you're in charge of how much money your dad has or how much money he's going to give you. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and she also said that she had learned how to be frugal and how to, another thing she did was haggle to the point of making oh my people God. uncomfortable. Oh my <laughs> God. Oh my God. I could not. Yes, Jean-Marie also said that there was a very embarrassing moment where he introduced her to, she wanted to buy some polo ponies and he introduced her to a friend who was selling some polo ponies. And I guess they were usually went for $20,000, $30,000, $40,000. And she was like, I'll give you 800. And they were like, what are Wait, you talking $800? $800. And the person was so insulted that they just left. She obviously didn't buy any polo ponies that day. But she said, you know, I learned from my businessman father to never spend money, to haggle constantly and get somebody down on price. And apparently people in the area sometimes did just give her deals because they were so exhausted by her. At the same time, though, this is interesting. Everyone described... Deanna as like wearing a ton of jewelry, wearing designer outfits, like going to and throwing all these fabulous parties. So clearly like one of the twins is spending the money. I feel like this is just like a nervous tick or something. So this is completely my own speculation, but I kind of wonder if, because she seems like especially, well, you know, she's kind of cheap all over, but this was a constant refrain about people whom she was dating would say things about her behavior around money and what she was willing to give or help out or pay for with a romantic partner. And I kind of wonder, like, having a billion dollars, knowing that you come from this very wealthy family, everyone knew it, if it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if people love me for myself or for my father's money. And if I give them none of it, <laughs> I never treat them to anything and they get no financial upside from being in this relationship, then I'll find out if they really like me or not. <laughs> Andy, Andy's face. Andy, you're not buying that? Very confused. I don't know. It's just weird. I could like get over the fact that she's a terrible date and won't give her date a steak. An entree of any kind. <laughs> An entree of any form. Except soft pasta. But yeah, only soft pasta in front of Animal Planet, Andy. But also, this is like probably my number one pet peeve. She just paid service people poorly as well. No, it's the worst. So she's just kind of insulting people left and right. Yeah, the type of rich person who doesn't tip. Yeah, that's gross. It's super, super duper gross. I think there's a lot of things that we can say could be the result of some sort of social anxiety or social 
disability, but I don't think that like the knowledge of someone helping you with something on a daily basis or anyone in the service industry, like being of service to you and you not taking care of them is just disrespectful and cheap. Yes. And it gets worse because Jean-Marie found out. So he thought that his checks from the major barn, the one that he was working at five days a week, were like a little low, a little light, but he didn't know why. And it was because there was a woman in the barn who collected all the money. And one day the woman was out. So he had to collect all of the money himself. And how it was split up was, I forget exactly what the money was, but it was like, let's say $55. And 25 went to the establishment because they had the horses and obviously all the gear and the space. And $30 was supposed to go to the instructor, who's John Marie. Okay. And when he went around and was like, I'm collecting because so-and-so is out today, Suzanne handed him just the $25 like that was meant for the barn and not his portion. And he realized then that this whole time, the reason why he's been short is because Suzanne was not paying him for his instruction. One of the wealthiest people there wasn't paying him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think she had to be one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest person. And she said, well, it's because I'm driving you on the weekend. So I I figured I didn't have to pay you for instruction. Oh, my God. That's just disrespectful. Yeah, he was pissed. That's just disrespectful. That's like a complete assumption of something that you offered to do to help someone. And then you're going to, like, take the money for their lesson. That's not okay. He was like, I offered you gas money. He's like, I'd much rather pay you a few bucks here and there for gas than have you owe me $600 for everything. And he was like, well, you're going to pay me back for all of those lessons. And she was like, no, I pay what I think is fit. And I don't think I have to pay you. So did he say you're not welcome here anymore? He said, guess what? You graduated. He literally went to the office and was like, boom, here's your polo certificate. You're done. Well, now, before this happened, though, so this happens a little later, in late June of 1995, Jean-Marie, when he was still teaching Suzanne, had escorted her with his other students to a professional polo exhibition. And it was there that Suzanne met Jean-Marie's friend, a fellow Argentine and polo pro, Roberto Villegas. So Jean-Marie was more amused than anything. It was clear that Suzanne, right from this initial meeting, was absolutely enthralled and charmed by Roberto. And I guess Roberto was this really funny guy. So he made some joke that it like went over Suzanne's head that she didn't react to. So he really did not see a romance coming between his friend and his student. So by the time he found out that Suzanne had screwed him out of all of this money, and instruction, he could not do anything or say anything to Roberto because by then Roberto and Suzanne had already been dating for a little while and they were pretty hot and heavy. Whoa, really? Mm-hmm. So I think it was like a few weeks after this introduction that he realized what was going on. And he went to Roberto and he's like, what are you doing with Suzanne? Like, she's cheap. She's weird. She's really unsettling. And he was just like, I really like her. I get along with her. We have similar interests and she's fun to be around. So no one understood this couple. They made no sense on the outside. I mean, obviously, Roberto's upbringing could not have been farther from Suzanne's wealthy existence. And I do mean like really far (laughs) because 
nobody, even like upper middle class people do not understand what Suzanne, how she was raised with that kind of money. But Roberto was born on October 22nd, 1959 in a very small rural town in the province of Cordoba in Argentina. And he was impoverished. It was a very different upbringing. He grew up on a dusty cattle ranch, about a 12-hour bus ride away from Buenos Aires. And his father was a ranch hand. So they were given kind of like this tiny little bungalow, like a one-room bungalow for the entire family to live in as long as he worked on this ranch. But the bungalow did not have a telephone. It did not have electricity. It did not even have running water. Wow. So they had to like bring water over. Yep. So they had to bring water over. There was a communal outhouse for all of the little bungalows to use, apparently. So this was a very different existence. Roberto dropped out of school in the seventh grade, mostly so he could go to work on the ranch and help support his family as well. And despite his lack of education and his very humble beginnings, Roberto had really big dreams. He wanted to become a big-time international polo player. Polo, behind soccer or football, was one of Argentina's biggest sports. I think it still is. And Roberto proved quite adept at it. So obviously he was riding out of horses at this ranch, and then he got into polo. And this was not exactly what his parents had planned for him. In fact, I read that he had run away once in his teens when his mother tried to force him to go to seminary school to be a priest. Oh, wow. Yeah, they had very different plans. They had very different plans, which I think on his parents' side, they were just trying to make sure that he was provided for. So he did not want that. But they came around when he got the opportunity to go to the United States as a groom to a high-profile polo player at the age of 21. Yeah, that's amazing. Yes. His mother apparently cried when he left and she yelled to him, this is a chance for you to make something of your life, like basically as he got on the bus. So you can just imagine the scene. I've actually taken a bus from Mendoza to (laughs) dusty Mendoza to Buenos Aires, a really long bus. You can imagine it's like dusty and she's like, you make something of your life, son. And you don't know. You don't know if you'll ever see him again. He could just never come back. It's just such a different time. And so he spoke no English, and they said that he was barely literate in his own Spanish just because he hadn't had the opportunity to go to school. And school wasn't really his thing anyway, but he went to the United States, and he had grit, determination, and a hell of a lot of charisma. Wow. Yeah, and it was not easy. I mean, this guy had a lot going against him. He was a clumsy country boy. They said that even among the Argentinians, he was just seemed very lowbrow, like his sense of humor just was not the same. Like he was just a little uncouth and his teeth were covered with really bad green stains. What do you mean? Well, I guess this is terrible. The green stains were the result of repeated exposure to chemicals used to treat the drinking water in his tiny farming village. What? Yes. So I guess everyone in this village had these kind of green teeth. Whoa. Yep. And so his fellow workers, when he got to the United States, actually called him Green Teeth. That was his horrible Okay, that's not fucking cool. No. But he proved himself really hardworking, talented. Like, he's the opposite of Suzanne, where he gets, like, every social cue. Like, he might not have 
exactly the book sparts, obviously, but he like reads like body language. He just understands people and he completely like managed to just turn it on and become a lot more like the very well-to-do polo players that he was around at the time who are in and amongst the wealthiest in the country and in the world. And so he just started making friends, influencing people, getting promotions. And eventually a dentist in Florida gifted him a full set of pearly white cap teeth. That's amazing. Yes. Like veneers? Like veneers. It looks like, I don't know what caps are, but that's what it looks like veneers. I would imagine, yeah. They just shave them down and then put caps on. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even bleach his teeth, I guess, then, if they were like, you're going to have to go straight to caps. I feel like veneers are like the nicest version of solution, though, because you can just make them perfect. Oh, my gosh. And his smile was perfect. It actually went from being his greatest shame to his 100% best feature. Really? Oh, my gosh. Yes. He's like very well known for this amazing smile. It became his That's signature. That's so great then because I feel like it was probably something that brought shame for so long. And then he was able to show that off. Oh, my gosh. Yes. My dad's a dentist. And I've talked to people when they come in to get their teeth fixed. And they talk about how they didn't smile for years. And that every time there was a camera out, they'd like be thinking about covering their mouth or how they were looking. Or if they go on a date, they don't want to like laugh a certain way. It's transformational. And it really was for Roberto. And I mean, it also goes to show, unfortunately, how vain society is because he was already doing really well. But when he got those new set of teeth, like all of a sudden he exploded. He was being a featured polo player. People wanted him on their teams. It really did change everything for him. That's amazing. Yeah. So basically, I kind of explained it a little bit more, but how polo players make money is that it seems like a wealthy person starts a team because they want to play polo. So they start their own team, like they all have their own barn. So there's like, they say so-and-so like barn or estate or whatever it is. And then they sponsor a professional to play on their team so that they win more. And that's kind of how it goes. And the price of sponsorship depended on the talent and star power of the player, but always included a truck and trailer to transport polo ponies, room and board, as well as a financial compensation package, usually in the neighborhood of 20 grand per season. And seasons were different places. So I think in the summer, they were in Virginia or the spring. And then in the winter, they went to Florida. And that's where the winter season was. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Do only ponies play polo? They call them polo ponies. I mean, they look like horses to me, but I cannot tell the difference between ponies and horses, which ponies are not small horses. They are a totally different type of horse. Oh, I thought they were baby horses. No, that's, I think, a cult. I think people who aren't horse people think that ponies are like baby horses. They're not. It's like a totally different type of horse. There's full-grown adult ponies. And so, yeah, and also a sideline business for a lot of these polo players was taking in rough ponies and turning them into great polo ponies. So, like, basically, like, breaking them and training them. Those rough ponies. <laughs> so, yeah, that was something Roberto did as well. So he was not actually the best player out there, but he was hardworking, and they said he was very aggressive. And, in fact, some people reported that Roberto was too aggressive often getting physical with other players on and off the field. 
And I guess one referee reported that he had to prevent Roberto from enacting revenge on a player who had fouled him during the game. I guess that this referee caught Roberto going to the other player's trailer and thought maybe he had a knife on him. Wow. Yeah. So Roberto has a little fiery temper here. So this was a side of Roberto that was not seen by many of his polo friends and especially his sponsors, who were also his team owners. At the time that Roberto met Suzanne, he was playing for Travis and Susie Worsham's heart and hand team, and they just totally adored him. They said that they never saw him behaving aggressively at all. Years later, they appeared on Vanity Fair Confidential with only glowing things to say about Roberto. They said that he was a crowd favorite who could move between any social set. From the wealthiest polo team owners and players in the country to the grooms and stable boys. They said that he never forgot where he came from. But at the same time, there was just an ease about him. So he just wasn't intimidated by other people's wealth or power. So it was just like he treated everyone the same. I feel like I like get a little bit of that vibe like with Argentinian people in general when we've been down there. Like I feel like the wealthy and like the normal people all treat each other the same. Yeah. Treat each other with respect. Yeah. Yeah. Also, do you remember when we were in Buenos Aires? And I left my debit card in the ATM and this like guy chased us down like three blocks to give it back. Yeah. Yeah. No, it never happens. I know. It was amazing. There's been a lot of things that have been like awesome about being down there. I do feel like that that's probably a personality trait that just carries into other cultures being from there. Yeah. So I think that this may also account for why Suzanne and Roberto originally made such a strong pair despite their surface level differences because he was from a poor background, but he was very outgoing and popular and comfortable in his own skin. And while she was from an obscenely wealthy background, she was not really comfortable in her own skin. She wasn't social. She was certainly not popular. However, it seemed like they were both looking for love and a deep understanding And of course, with Roberto being the way he was, he wasn't treating Suzanne any differently, whether that was being treated differently because she had a lot of money or whether it was being treated differently because she was a little bit odd. Yeah. So I'm sure that was attractive. And then they also both loved horses and polo. And everyone who knew Roberto said he truly did not care about money. Not Suzanne's, not his own, not anybody's. One of his ex-girlfriends said that, He just, to the point, didn't care about money that it drove her crazy. Like, he wasn't planning for the future. He just wanted to play polo. And, like, it was great if he made enough money to keep just getting to play polo. Yeah, but, like, you actually have to, like, make enough money to keep playing polo, which takes (laughs) a little bit of budgeting. Yeah, I think, like, growing up the way he did, that he just is kind of like, well, anything is better than where I came from. I can live on so little. Exactly. He could sleep wherever. He could sleep wherever. He, at one point, he, like, during this, when he's, like, dating Suzanne, he ended up, like, staying at this place and, like, picking apples to make extra money. Like, he just was not snotty at all about any of this stuff. And he really, truly did not care about Suzanne's wealth. And it did seem like, while she wasn't obviously very financially generous to him, she did take care of him in other ways. Everyone did say that when he got together with her, he cut back on his drinking, he got in better shape. 
And people did overhear him calling her mother. No. (laughs) Hard no for me, too. This went unexplored. Everyone just kind of insinuated that it meant that she took care of him like a mother. There was something affectionate there. I feel like I would have asked a lot more questions about why we felt like this was an appropriate nickname for someone we're having sex with. Yeah, it's not. For Suzanne's part, she seemed thrilled to have landed such a talented and well-respected polo player. I mean, this was, she'd obviously gone for Jean-Marie and gotten turned down. Polo players were her jam. This was her type. And everyone loved this guy. He was super magnetic. However, her mother and social set did not see Roberto as the catch that she did. Oh, I mean, is there anything more cliche? (laughs) I mean, this is just a movie. This is like literally an AI bot could have written this because it's just a classic tale of haves and have-nots. Well, Sam Cummings, the American, seemed to approve a little bit, at least, of the ambitious Argentinian. Suzanne's mother detested him. She thought of him as an interloper, and she did not trust his intentions. So many think that it was her mother's disapproval that prevented Roberto from moving into the mansion with Suzanne. The cat mansion? The cat mansion. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he had allergies. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> want to make sure it was the That's same mansion. Cats, not for you. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he never really spent the night. That's at least what a lot of people said about their relationship. He also gave up a lot to be with Suzanne. Like, obviously, as a polo player, he made a lot of money by moving around every season to go wherever polo was hot. And he turned down going to Florida for the winter polo season so he could stay with Suzanne. And that's why he actually worked as an apple picker for a while. Because he needed more money. He needed more money and he needed a place to stay because they offered him like a bunk, essentially, while you're picking apples at this farm. And then after apple picking season was over, she did end up helping him find a room in a boarding house, essentially. But it's to me crazy that they're in a romantic relationship. They're in a sexual relationship. That's confirmed. It is confirmed. Okay. Yes. She mentioned something about them having sex, although... I read something else where her mom was like, oh, I don't even think they were intimate. But she says they were intimate later. It's just her mom is in denial about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might have also told her mom that they weren't having sex because her mom didn't approve. So we don't know for sure. But it's crazy to me that she has all this room and she's like, you have to stay in a room at a boarding house, even though you gave up your whole career for me. Yeah, but that's the same mentality as like, you can't order this day. <laughs> it is. It's the same thing. Yeah. What's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. Well, though Suzanne and Roberto were allegedly discussing a future with marriage, kids, they had talked about maybe when he retired from polo going to Montana where they would work in some sort of like conservation as environmental rangers to prevent the poaching of endangered animals. Oh, that's a yeah, which is positive. Truly a noble cause for sure. And it seems like something they would both be very interested in. But I think that their different social stratas might have been a hard roadblock to overcome with Suzanne. So I think she wanted this life with him. But at the end of the day, she wasn't going to make a decision for the rest of her life that would go against her parents' wishes 
especially if they're still paying the bill. There's a very different relationship when your parents are essentially still taking care of you as if you were a child, paying all of your bills, making sure you're housed. Yeah, she's not independent at all. No. So I don't think she's going to go against especially what her mother thinks. At this point, by the time she's dating Roberto, her father was getting a little older and he wasn't doing as well. So I think that he just at that point wanted her to be happy because he said something to Roberto like, take care of my girl, like take care of her for me. Like that seemed tacitly like he was approving of the relationship. But Irma was going to be the one holding the purse strings now. And she did not like Roberto. Yep. And she also would later say that Suzanne never had any intention to marry Roberto at all. She was like, it's ridiculous that people are talking about how they had plans to get married or go to Montana together. She would have told me and she absolutely did not see this person as a forever person. At least that's what her mother thought. But again, that's what she would tell her mother if her mother doesn't approve of him. Yeah. It's like icky, though. It's a lot. It's, there's a lot of classist bullshit going on here. And I'm sure racism because he's a person of color. Yeah. It's like icky. In the Vanity Fair article, this close family friend of theirs spoke to the reporter and had this to say about Suzanne's choice in men. He said, quote, I cringed at who I saw her with. About Viega, I only have to say, look at where she finds her dogs. Um, rude. Very, very rude. So adding that, that there's obviously disapproval within her family or community, but there's also the fact that Suzanne had deep-seated trust issues. She was mistrustful of people in general, and she was allegedly a very jealous person. Uh, she would deny that, but by other people's witnessing or accounts, they believe she was an extremely jealous person. And she did admit that she did not believe that people have good intentions, that she was willing to be proven wrong the other way. Basically, I'm going to go in and think everyone has bad intentions and let them prove me wrong that they actually have good intentions versus... Where's her sister reeling her in on any of this? I honestly don't know. I really don't know. They kind of just tossed her out to sea a little bit. Well, I don't know what's going on. And her sister's not living at the mansion. She's living on the property, but she's got her own stuff going on here. Yeah, but it's like still your twin sister. <laughs> I mean, she might have thought that it was a protective measure for her money and her heart. And that's if that's how she wants to operate her life. I mean, you can't stop somebody from feeling that way. I mean, you can send them to therapy, hopefully. <laughs> you can encourage them to get some counseling, but... I mean, I don't know how what her sister would have done at this point. Yeah, it's just like, I guess like once you just stop tipping people, you're kind of a lost cause. <laughs> I agree with you completely. <laughs> yeah. Which also, guys, like, I know that tipping should not be a debate, but people think like people who get tips like also get a ton of hourly pay. They don't. And they do not. When Andy and I worked at bars and restaurants in Boston, our hourly wage was two sixty four. Mine was two fifteen when I started. Two fifteen when you started. I remember my check. I think when I left, being two sixty four, and you never saw it because they took the taxes out of it. So you'd full on get an issued check for zero dollars. Yeah. So we lived on our tips. Like that was it. That was our only income. So essentially, Roberto's giving up a lot to be with Suzanne at this point. Because it's very lucrative to go to these different seasons and play polo. And that's his entire income other than 
training these polo ponies, and she's not really giving up much at all. So a lot of Roberto's friends, including Jean-Marie, were very shocked to find out that he was joining a team with Suzanne. So like basically she decided that she wanted a polo team. It's not shocking. But what they were shocked by is like how she was compensating him. So she was paying for his tiny little room in this boarding house, occasional meals and the stabling of his horses and her barn. But she wasn't giving him anything else. Like usually there's like, like I said, that monetary compensation package that he wasn't getting from it. So everyone was a little surprised that he wasn't asking his very wealthy girlfriend for the bare minimum that he would absolutely ask anybody else for. And it also was notable that I guess like a lot of these polo players also can be essentially rented out. Like if there's like a team that has a player that's not going to be able to make it or there's an injury or something that you can do a day rate to have a pro come and play on your team. And she wouldn't let him play for other teams as well. This all feels very like human trading. Uh, all the sponsorship and like yeah. you can like basically buy a pro to be on your team so that you win. But to also sleep with. Like it's just weird. Well, it's very weird. This whole relationship, I think maybe on their side, the reason why he didn't want money and she did not want to pay him was because they wanted to make it less transactional that, I mean, it could be. No, I she just no was being cheap. She was being cheap, but yeah. on his side, maybe he was like, I want to prove that I'm her equal and I'm her lover. She doesn't need to pay me money. That's not fair. And no one should have to ask for the minimum pay of this situation. They should be given it, considering who the money is coming from. And it's a recreational thing. It gets even worse, though, because also he wasn't getting as much time to exercise and work on his game and obviously wasn't being allowed to go and play for other teams. And they said that was because he was working as an unpaid laborer on her estate because she was so frugal that she wouldn't pay for a real staff to take care of her estate. So he's the one doing everything. And he even told his friends that she was impossible. And, and this is where there's like some fractures happening in their relationship when he decides to stay and he's basically working on her estate for free. And now he's playing on her team for free. And they're not quite getting along because he's starting to see that he doesn't like some of the ways that she's treating people. He talked about how she had this one, like, I think it was like a housekeeper or something that was like having to sweep a very large space that was insane. Like it was so much labor for her. And so Roberto went out and bought her a leaf blower and was like, there, this is so easy. You do the leaf blower, we're good. And she refused to compensate him that Suzanne would not give him the money that he had paid for the leaf blower because she's like, she can sweep, let her sweep. And he's like, she's a very elderly woman. I guess this woman was older in question. He's like, she should not be doing this backbreaking sweeping all the time when it can be done in two minutes with a leaf blower. Yeah, so she's just like being mean now. Yeah. She's frugal and mean, yeah, and not tipping. Yeah, so he's starting to see like, okay, maybe this isn't just a quirk Maybe she's just not a great person. Person, yeah. Suzanne refused to buy necessary equipment for the team and for the farm. She also was arguing with Roberto about the training and treatment of the polo ponies. 
So basically, she thought that he was doing some training with these horses, and she thought it was abusive. I don't know exactly what the training was, so I can't tell you how it was. But she was like, you're exercising them too much. You're pushing them too much. I don't want you to treat them like that. And he thought on his side that she was overfeeding them, so they weren't in good shape. They were sluggish. And she saw them more as pets versus this is his sport. This is his career. And he knows how he wants his horses conditioned in order to play well. And she's just telling him, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. That's not how we're going to treat these horses. And he's like, okay. So I guess he was like grumbling to people that he just wasn't playing as well because his horses weren't properly exercised. He wasn't properly exercised. Just things are going downhill fast. But the nail was really placed in the coffin when Suzanne made a trip to Monaco to visit her ailing father. And Roberto declined to go with her. She did invite him to go. Was she going to pay for his plane ticket, though? I do not know. I mean, I'm guessing based on the track record, I would speculate. No. No. Which I'd also be like, nothing. Well, we don't know exactly why he said no. I mean, there's a lot of factors here. Maybe it was cost. Maybe it was the fact that her mother hates him. I mean, I'd imagine a plane ticket to Monaco is not cheap. No. And I mean, there's also, I think, Roberto may have had one foot out the door in this relationship at this point, too. During the two weeks that Suzanne was abroad, Roberto was reportedly seen with other women. And at least one friendly acquaintance of Suzanne's reported that he had made a move on her. So he's making deals. Yeah, he's going to make moves. He's making moves. There were other rumors that Roberto was tiring of Suzanne and her demands and that he might have been trying to win back or back in touch with his ex, who is a woman named Kelly Quinn. And I guess that he had just broken up with Kelly six months before meeting Suzanne and he had not wanted the breakup Kelly had. So he might have been back in touch with her too or trying to win her back in some capacity. But this is all spelling disaster. They're moving towards a breakup, clearly. Suzanne was jealous and mistrustful even before this trip. So even before he's like going out and doing whatever he's doing, she did not trust him. Roberto's landlady recalled seeing Suzanne drive by the house on several occasions when Roberto wasn't home to see where he was. So she was keeping tabs on him. But now, I mean, I don't know about before, but now it seems like she may have a good reason to not trust him because it seems like he might be stepping out. Meanwhile, those close to Suzanne claim she was not jealous at all and that she was the one who wanted to end the relationship. In fact, Suzanne claimed that she wasn't just over Roberto and their relationship. She was frightened of him. On August 20th, 1997, Suzanne and her polo friend, Jane Rowe, went to the sheriff's office to file a complaint against Roberto. Though it was Suzanne's story, her friend Jane did all of the talking for her, claiming that Suzanne had confided in her some three or four weeks earlier while they were at a party that Roberto had been berating her with abusive language and threatening to hurt her. So the sergeant of major crimes had heard Jane talking for a while and eventually was like, no, 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 no. Like, it's, I'm glad you're here to support your friend, but I need to hear it from you, Suzanne, what Roberto is doing to you because you're the one filing this complaint. 
And Suzanne stated the following. She said that he had said to her, I will put a bullet through your head and hang you upside down to let the blood pour on your bed. He also mentioned he would also potentially drown me several times. This is what Suzanne is saying about Roberto and him threatening her. Well, that's horrifying. Absolutely. And he does have a history of a temper. We're going to get into that a little bit later, too. I've only briefly mentioned it mostly around Polo, but there is some cause for concern. There's some ex-girlfriends that we're going to talk about that said that he had a temper moving into an abusive tendency. So she's saying this, but the sergeant was like, okay, this is horrifying, obviously. Let's immediately, we can go in front of a magistrate right now. I'll take you. They're open. And you can get a restraining order today. A judge will sign off on it today. We'll keep you protected. Let's do this right now. And she refused. She said, no, I'm not going to do that. Because she's making it up or? We don't know. So she says no. And he's like, okay, well, if you don't want to do a restraining order, then there's another option. You can post a no trespassing sign on your property. And because it's posted the moment he steps foot on your property, ignoring that sign, you can call 911 and say, my doors are locked. He's not respecting the sign. He's trespassing. And we can immediately come and have reason to arrest him. I'm seeing a lot of solutions. And that's what he's giving her. He's giving her solution after solution. She says, no, I'm not posting a no trespassing sign on my property. He said, okay, we have a lot of people who have money in your area. A lot of times people maybe get their own security. You have your own money to get your own private security company. Maybe you should look into that because that's also another option. If you don't want to get a restraining order, you don't want to post a no trespassing sign. No. Problem solver, this guy. Where is he? Yeah. (laughs) He's great. He's just like methodically going through these things. She says no again. And her friend is like, well, isn't there anything else you can do? And he's like... Ladies, I'm giving you a lot of options to protect yourself against this guy. So finally, Jane, the friend, is like, he has a record. He has a criminal record. He has a history of abuse. He's done this to women before. He's been arrested. There's warrants out for his arrest. Just look him up. And if there's warrants out for his arrest, can't you do something? And he's like, yes, I'm going to look him up right now. If there is warrants out for his arrest, I can go pick him up right now. And he's off the streets. But there aren't. There's nothing. <laughs> no prior offenses at Officer, all. There was no. He is poor and not from here. Can't you go arrest him? Can't you go arrest him? That's exactly what she wanted. He did say that they both looked dumbfounded that there wasn't a record. So they're just making that shit up and hoping that that's yeah. wild. So there's just he has a clean record. There's nothing they can do. So they didn't do anything after submitting a written report, which, by the way, he had to ask her to do. This guy, Sergeant Healy, was like, okay, something is weird about this whole situation. obviously. You can't just leave after not getting him arrested. I want you to write a written report about what he's doing to you because I want it in writing. And she did it? She did it. She wrote a report saying that he had been threatening her. He had been physically and verbally abusive towards her. But that at that point, she didn't want to take any steps further. Yeah. Okay. So he said, though, that he remembered this exchange. Something about it irked him. And I think it's 
potentially because he knew somewhere deep down intuitively that this was not the last he'd be hearing about this situation. And he was right, because in less than three weeks' time, he would be summoned to Suzanne's estate, Ashland Farm, to investigate a shooting death. So the turbulent relationship between the polo player and the heiress came to an end on September 7th, 1997, when one lover shot the other in cold blood or in the heat of the moment, depending on who you believe. After dispatcher Michael Zietz alerted the authorities to the shooting, police arrived roughly 10 to 12 minutes later, where they were greeted at the front door by one of the ladies of the estate, Deanna Cummings. So Deanna said, they're in here. And then Deanna led the police through the large, like I said, almost empty house, which, by the way, the police officers were like, there are hella cats in this place. I was going to say, not fully empty. No, they were like, wow, there's a lot of cats. Like, they stopped counting at, like, 13. They're like, I don't, I can't keep track of all these cats. They were brought to this small kitchen. There was two kitchens in this place. And it seemed like this might have been more of, like, a service kitchen because it was a very small kitchen. And that is where they found the deceased. Andy, who do you believe the deceased is? Roberto. You are correct. It is Roberto, yeah. (laughs) You are 100% correct. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, yes. Roberto was lying on the floor in a pool of his own blood, and Suzanne was in the next room. There was a gun on the floor. It was a Walther P1, the German gun manufacturer that was a favorite of her father's. When Diana identified Suzanne as the shooter, Suzanne was then handcuffed, at which point the officers realized that she was also bleeding. So she's bleeding as well. She was bleeding from several superficial scratches or cuts on her arm. Okay. Roberto was lying face down on the floor. His eyes were open and staring, and he was wearing a red polo shirt tucked into jeans. And it was obvious. I mean, they were telling him that. Suzanne had shot him, but it was very clear that that's how he had passed away. The detective clocked that while the blood around Roberto was congealed, almost to the consistency of jello, the blood that dripped from Suzanne's arm was free-flowing and looked fresh. So he's immediately, like, taking in the scene. Roberto's body was also slightly under the kitchen table, and based on what was on the table it looked like he was having breakfast. There was a bag of croissants. There was coffee. It looked like he had just been having breakfast at the time of the shooting. So Sergeant Healy, who had so recently taken Suzanne's statement, arrived at the scene and was told that Suzanne wanted to talk to him. She had requested him on purpose. And she said that she trusted him. But of course, she wasn't a dummy. She was going to call her attorney. So after her attorney arrived, she said then she would be very happy to talk to Sergeant Healy. But she did tell him I was justified in the killing because Roberto had attacked me. So this is self-defense. I'm not going to say anything more until my attorney gets here. But I was attacked and fearing for my life. 
So at the time that this is going on, when she's saying all this and she's saying, but we're going to have to wait until my attorney gets here, he noticed that the wounds on Suzanne's arm were superficial to the point that he described them as looking like the wounds you'd get if you walked through a rose bush. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just surface level scratching. Just surface level. And he also felt like the blood that was coming out of these wounds was kind of like slightly streaming down her arm. But he just was looking at them and he could not imagine how that much blood had come from such a small scratch. And he was like thinking that maybe she was squeezing her arm to make it bleed more, to make it look more aggressive. He immediately was not. Something's not right. Something's not right. He also noted that these scratches were perfectly, I think, horizontal and that when somebody is slashed or a knife is being held to them, they move away from the knife, which creates a jagged edge because the person's moving and trying not to get cut. And there was no jagged edges on these cuts. So to Sergeant Healy, it did appear that these cuts were self-inflicted. And that was even before he knew that the blood around Roberto was congealed while the blood from her arm was still free-flowing So he didn't even know that there was a discrepancy in the timing of the story she's about to tell. He just was looking at these cuts himself and thinking that something seemed very strange. And even when the paramedics came and they were attending to her, they were like, oh, these cuts just need to be cleaned up. She obviously didn't need any stitches. She didn't need anything. They were like, it was like barely Band-Aid territory here. Mm -hmm. But did she get like Moana Band-Aids or Mickey or... (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think. Although I think she would have gone for like, I don't know, Black Beauty, something horsey (laughs) rather than Disney. But yeah, so she was allowed to change her clothes. They took her clothes, obviously, with them. And then when she cleaned herself up and her attorney came, then she did go down to the station where she did make a statement to the police. So Suzanne claimed that she was a officially done with Roberto. They were breaking up. It was over. She had told him several times she didn't want to be with him anymore. And obviously she was like, Sergeant Healy, I came and talked to you about it. You know, he has this history of abuse against me. I've been trying to end it with him. And he's not listening to me. She said that that morning she had come downstairs to find Roberto sitting at her breakfast table with a bag of croissants. And she knew that day he had a very big match. It was Argentina versus the United States. There was like this big polo match that they were excited to go to. Jean-Marie was playing in it. She had already tried to cancel this for him, (laughs) like on his behalf. She had tried to say that he wasn't going. Obviously, this was a big deal for him. He was excited to represent his country. Why isn't he going? I don't know why she didn't want him to go. She was going to murder him. She's like, he can't come. And then there had been some fight about whether, I don't know how his horses became her horses. He had told a friend, like he had sold them to her, but after his death, there's no record of him having any money whatsoever. So if he sold them to her, then where was the money? She didn't pay them. And so there was some argument about whether or not he could take the horses to play in this match. Now she's saying this, she's saying, He came. Those are my horses now. He's saying that he's going to go to this match. He wants to use my horses. And I'm saying no. Now, Jean-Marie is saying later that 
some part of this is correct because there had been some discussion about what horses they were going to use. But he said that this argument could not have happened because they had already made plans to use somebody else's horses. So he wouldn't be saying to her that morning, I'm going to take my horses and I'm going to go because he's like, this doesn't even make sense. He wasn't planning on bringing any horses. And in fact, we already made plans to use another teammate's horses. So like, we didn't need horses. This doesn't make any sense when Jean-Marie hears about this later. Yeah, not even a real argument. No. So she says that they got into this fight about the horses and that he was getting extremely angry with her. And at one point he jumped from the table and he grabbed her by the neck. Now he had this bone handled knife that he used for everything. It was like just something that he used around the farm. It's something that he kept on his person just in case something got tangled or he needed to like cut some reins or something happened. So he always had this bone handled knife on him. And she said that he took out this knife, the one that he carried at most times. And at that point, while he has her by the neck, he ran the knife down her face. And she said that he then told her that, quote, no piece of shit woman was going to tell him what to do and that he was going to teach her a lesson. She said at that point, he began slashing her arm. That's where the cuts came from. And Suzanne said that she truly believed that he was going to kill her. She said that she managed to convince him that she had changed her mind, that he could use the horses. And she said that she told him, don't worry, I'll never tell anyone that you just cut me on the arms. It's okay. Like, you take the horses. We never need to talk about this again. Just let me go. I'd like to like go make a cup of coffee. Let me just make a cup of coffee. That's what I want to do after my arm gets sliced. Yeah. And so she said that he calmed down and he seemed to sit down and she went into the kitchen near where the coffee maker was. But she went over there because she knew she had a gun in one of the kitchen cupboards that way. And she said that she didn't intend on shooting Roberto she needed control. She didn't have control of the situation. She was frightened. And she knew if maybe if he attacked her again, at least she would have some sort of control over the situation if she had the gun and she didn't have the gun. So she grabbed the pistol and she said that while she was turning back to Roberto, he was getting out of his chair and now advancing on her with a menacing, mean, enraged look on his face. She said at that point, she was terrified and in self-defense, Suzanne fired her gun at least four times. Okay. She said he went down and at that point, she threw the gun on the floor. She went to the office, which was away for like down the hall, and she immediately called 911. Um, That's what she said. Even though it was breakfast. So that's Suzanne's story. But the medical examiner and the forensic techs did not think that the evidence backed up what she was saying. Well, there was the same type of knife found near Roberto. It looked like it had been placed there after the fact. There was no blood on it at all, except for a minute amount directly on the tip. Despite the fact that Roberto had been supposedly holding it, at the time he was advancing on her and he was shot multiple times and then bled out. So there should have been a considerable amount of blood on this knife. His fingerprints were not on the knife. So that says a lot. That says a lot right there. 
How were his fingerprints not on the knife that he uses every day? Because she obviously wiped it. I don't know why she didn't put his hand around it. Furthermore, the placement of the knife didn't make sense. Like it wasn't where it would have naturally fallen in any capacity. It was like almost like underneath him a little bit, like like weirdly placed. And then the medical examiner found pieces of croissant in Roberto's mouth. Like he was in the middle of chewing. So he still had a big piece of croissant in his mouth and his feet were under the table where he fell. And if it had gone down the way she was describing it, the positioning was all wrong. I mean, he looked like he never got up from the table, according to what the medical examiner believed. It just looked like he had been ambushed while sitting down, eating a croissant and drinking coffee. Yeah, enjoying breakfast. Yeah. They did end up talking to his landlady and... The timing didn't match up either. He had obviously been at her home or been at her home and then killed for a lot longer than she said because his landlady said he left really early in the morning. So he had been there for a while or he had been there and she had killed him and obviously not called 911 right away because that also would make sense of the fact that the blood around him was congealed and then she had to create the story about the scratches by scratching herself. They also said that if there was some sort of struggle, other than a dead body and the blood from the gunshot wounds, there was no struggle in that kitchen. The croissants and the coffee are all undisturbed on the table. So it's just, it doesn't look like a typical like struggle scene where you'd imagine self-defense would really come into play. But, you know, of course, they have to look into our story very seriously and make sure because it's entirely possible that this could have gone down in some capacity that he was abusive. Maybe it didn't go down exactly as she's saying it, but maybe she was genuinely terrified for her life. And though Roberto's teammates and employers had nothing but glowing things to say about him, two of his exes had at one point filed complaints against him that had never ended up resulting in charges. So the police were given some evidence that Roberto may have indeed been violent or at least verbally abusive to his intimate partners in the past. Margaret Bonnell was Roberto's serious girlfriend in what looked like, I think, the mid to late 80s. And the two even had a child together. On September 12, 1987, the police had been called to an apartment the couple was staying at. Margaret claimed that an argument had erupted after two young women had come to the apartment to look for Roberto. Whoa. Yeah, so deputies noticed that when they came to the apartment, because I think it was more of a disturbance thing that they were fighting so badly, they noticed that Margaret had bruises around her wrists and that there were scratches and scrapes on Roberto's bare chest because he was not wearing a shirt when the police came. Margaret told the police that Roberto had hit her on the head with the flat part of his hand, thrown her onto the bed, and then put a blanket over her head to muffle her screams. The police arrested Roberto and took him away. And it was noted that Margaret seemed to smile at him because he was saying, don't do this. Don't let them take me away. And apparently she just smiled at him. No charges were ever filed, though, because Margaret did end up changing her story. As she said to reporters later on, she was the one who had flown into a jealous rage after it appeared that the habitually unfaithful Roberto may have cheated once again, she had then attacked him and the bruises on her wrists were from him grabbing her because he was trying to get her to stop attacking him. 
And she said this. And she said that she let the police take him away and believe that he'd been abusive towards her for revenge because she was pissed off because he habitually cheated on her. Okay. And she said that to all of the media outlets about this case. Yeah, not a good look. So Kelly Quinn, the woman Roberto had dated right before Suzanne and was potentially maybe interested in reviving things with, had also made a complaint against the polo player. Red flags everywhere over here. In a complaint filed in February of 1995, Kelly alleged that in a jealous rage, Roberto had tried to force her off the road while she was driving with a male friend by swerving his truck in front of her and nearly hitting her vehicle. She said that he continued to chase her until she managed to shake him by going down back roads. In the complaint, she said she was afraid of Roberto and fearful that he would hurt her or her animals. However, in the 1997 Vanity Fair piece, Kelly said, quote, no, no, I can't imagine it when asked if Roberto was violent. She said Roberto was really happy most of the time. She told Judy Backrack about the incident that she like issued this complaint about. And she said that she had, quote, made friends with this guy and Roberto was a little bit jealous. I was taking this fellow home. Roberto followed us on the highway and sort of swerved his truck in front of my car and then drove off. I went to the cops. It was two and a half years ago, and I have regretted it ever since. Oh, my God. No way. Because I know deep down he would never do anything to hurt me. I went to the polo club after this happened, and I found him sobbing. I don't want people to focus on this incident. So we have two reports of abusive behavior, but we also have two women who are recanting them. And then, of course, there's Suzanne, who she had herself filed a complaint against Roberto less than three weeks before the shooting as well. Okay, so despite the fact that we now have three women that have at some point seemed to be scared of Roberto, Sergeant Healy's gut was saying that there was something wrong, at least about Suzanne's complaint. Yeah, something fishy. Yeah, and obviously after, because he didn't understand why she did not want protection at any step of the way in this situation, even offering her all of those avenues that she could be protected. But if she's protected against him, then she cannot kill him. You can only lead a horse to water. (laughs) Yes, that's true. But yeah, so he ended up looking into this, of course, and found out that she had tried to get Roberto deported. Oh, my God. So before she went in to lodge the complaint, she had first tried to get him deported. When that failed, she went to the police and she wanted him arrested. And then when she could not get rid of Roberto, who maybe she wanted revenge on the same way Margaret had wanted revenge on for cheating, maybe then she decided it was time to get rid of him. So that's what... Sergeant Healy is thinking at this time. I mean, I also want to throw out there that it is entirely possible that he was abusive in some capacity and that she also wanted to get rid of him for that reason. I mean, I could see her saying, I don't want him to do this to another woman. Maybe she was shocked that he didn't have warrants out for his arrest because she knew that he had had violent behavior towards women before. 
it's not looking good for the fact that she truly killed him in this moment, describing the moment as she's saying it. Like, it's just not matching up with the physical evidence. However, we can't discount the fact that it's entirely possible that there was an abusive element to this relationship that we don't know about. 100%. So all of this physical evidence, the fact she tried to get him deported, the landlady's report of Suzanne driving by multiple times to try to keep tabs on Roberto, Suzanne's history of stalking objects of her affection, according to Jean-Marie and his girlfriend at the time, and the story that Roberto had told a friend that Suzanne had gone completely bonkers when she witnessed a flirtatious exchange between her bikini-clad twin sister and Roberto from her bedroom window led the police to think that the motive was jealousy. Whoa. So I guess that uh, Deanna had been sunbathing and Suzanne was watching them from her bedroom window. And I read a couple different reports. One was that there was some sort of like wink or something. There was one that maybe Deanna had playfully swatted him on the behind as he walked by or something. There was some exchange that she wasn't comfortable with. And she apparently opened her window and started screaming at him that it was like time for him to take a nap and he needs to come upstairs right away. Okay, mother. <laughs> yeah, okay, mother. Yes. And of course, Deanna and Suzanne denied that this ever occurred. So he had told a friend about it and that friend was telling the police. Okay. So all of this paired up with the fact that Roberto had been seen around town with other women. He had been telling some of his friends that he was potentially ready to move on from Suzanne. All of this is basically feeling like Suzanne had snapped, either when she found out about some infidelity or that just in general he was leaving her. Those close to Suzanne, of course, and Suzanne herself said, oh, well, the opposite was true. I was leaving him and he could not get that through his head. He would not let me go. So that's what she's saying. But all the money in the world could not prevent Suzanne from being arrested for Roberto's murder. It could, however, Andy, prevent her from having to stay in jail while awaiting trial, of course. Suzanne was released on a $75,000 bail and was even allowed in December of 1997 to fly to Monaco to see her ailing father. Which I have... Literally never heard of somebody who is about to be on trial for murder being allowed to fly to a foreign country. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Absolutely. So while Suzanne was getting out of jail and jet-setting, Roberto's friends and Polo family were trying to make sense of his money, trying to figure out what they could send back to Argentina to his family. And, of course, he has a son with Margaret. So sad. And they were also trying to honor his memory. Travis and Susie Warsham who were his old friends and bosses and sponsors. Actual sponsors. Actual sponsors. Decided to take over being the executors of his estate to try to figure out what they could do. And he had no money at all. And they didn't understand how he no longer owned his polo ponies, but he also had no money because they should have gone for tens of thousands of dollars. And... He had told friends that he had sold them to Suzanne and she said, yes, absolutely. I bought them. They're mine. They're not his. But there was no money. It just wasn't there. So clearly she did not give him that money unless he somehow managed to spend tens of thousands of dollars in a matter of weeks, which there wasn't any evidence of that either. There was just no evidence that the money had ever existed. 
Yeah. So now, I mean, she had killed him, but she had also essentially robbed his son or his impoverished family back at home of the money that those polo ponies would have brought in. The Warshams paid for the funeral. And I guess that the like embassy of Argentina sent his body back to Argentina. But many of his teammates and friends spoke at his funeral, including his ex-girlfriend, Kelly Quinn, who I guess tearfully read a poem for him. So there was certainly no bad blood there, it would seem. Yeah. To Roberto's loved ones, there was no doubt, no doubt in their hearts at all, that Suzanne Cummings had murdered him in cold blood. But would a jury agree? Let's find out right now. They better. In May of 1998, the prosecution geared up for the fight of their lives. Obviously, Suzanne could afford the very best. I mean, she can throw every expensive expert witness at the situation. Good thing she was saving up her money. Yeah, she could get the very best defense attorneys possible. Her lead counsel was actually a man named Blair Howard, who represented Lorena Bobbitt. So he was the big guns. Yep. The defense was, of course, that Suzanne, a shy, introverted woman with no history of violence or criminal record, had truly been afraid for her life when she shot her abusive and threatening boyfriend in self-defense. They planned to show evidence of Roberto's rage both on the polo field and also in how he treated his intimate partners. Margaret and Kelly were subpoenaed, so they did not want to testify, but they were forced to testify, which they did so very reluctantly. Kelly Quinn even told Vanity Fair that Suzanne's defense team and private investigators had harassed not only her, but her family as well. She said, quote, my sister was told by the detective, I hope you know Kelly will be called by the defense. She said, Kelly won't make a very good witness because neither she nor I will ever believe that Roberto was violent. And then he said, sure, that's what she says now. I hope you know that Blair Howard is just going to tear her up on the stand. Yikes. So this is what she said to the Vanity Fair. So this was not a kumbaya situation. No. They did not want to be there, but the defense needed them there for their purposes. So, I mean, he did a little. Like, he was very masterful. This is a very good defense attorney because you obviously can't bully a woman who was abused. You're going to look like an asshole. So he didn't do that, but, he, I mean, he brought up over and over again that they had made these complaints and made them admit that they had made these complaints. And did you say this? Yes, you did. You you made a complaint to the police that he was abusive. And, and they said, well, it's like, well, answered. Thank you. Moving on. I mean, it is what it is. It was there in writing. He could use it. Yeah. And even if it comes up that they change their stories, the fact remains that they were scared enough at one point to lodge a complaint. So it's true. I mean, these these complaints are a huge red flag. As a jury member, I'd be very compelled that this was self-defense, hearing that this was not his first domestic violence rodeo here if these allegations are true. Suzanne also took the stand in her own defense. And she pretty much told the same story, only now she's like adding in things that are helping her, that she knows that the prosecution are going to point out. Like saying that she was so terrified of him that she was standing stock still. She was scared stiff when he was cutting her, which would make sense when yeah, the prosecution yeah, yeah, says yeah. that she's not having the jagged edges of somebody that was resisting being cut. She's now saying on the stand, well, I was so scared I actually could not move. 
The defense also brought out a ton of character witnesses for Suzanne about what a good person she is, what a quiet person she is, like how she rescues all these animals and she mostly stays in and she's not a person that's ever been violent in her entire life. To the point that Roberto's friends and loved ones were getting really upset. I guess that a lot of them had reached out to the prosecutor to say that they wanted to be character witnesses. And that was not the direction that the prosecutor went in. So basically, they're sitting here hearing their friend's name completely dragged through the mud. And then there's all these character witnesses that the defense is putting up on Suzanne's side saying what a great person she is, what a loving person she is. And they're getting really mad about it. They're like, I wanted to get up there and talk about how great Roberto was and I wasn't allowed to. And it seems like the prosecutor just decided that they were going to let the facts speak for the case. I mean, the physical evidence showed that there was just no way for the shooting to have happened the way Suzanne described it. So he was going for these are the facts like you can cut it whatever way you want. We're not going to get into a war about whether this guy was a good guy or not a good guy. He didn't deserve to be shot in cold blood. It, he could be the worst person in the world. And he still didn't deserve to be shot in cold blood. There's other avenues. That's why we have a justice system. Yeah, while literally enjoying a croissant. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. But yeah, so the, he brought up the congealed blood, how clearly Roberto had been dead for far longer than it took law enforcement to get to the estate. And Suzanne's self-inflected wounds had occurred after Roberto was dead, obviously. Roberto's fingerprints not being on the knife and the fact that there wasn't any gunpowder residue on Roberto, which suggested that she was more than four feet away from him when she shot him. So it wasn't like he was getting close to her and she was actually afraid for her life. She was doing it from a distance, from safe distance. But this was a very hard case for the jury. Was Suzanne Cummings an abused woman who defended herself against a monster with a history of abuse or was she a scorned woman hell-bent on revenge? I think the latter, but I feel like I could see where the jury is all tied up. Yes. Well, on the initial votes, the vast majority of the jurors wanted to acquit. I guess that there was a lot of women on the jury and that they did identify with Suzanne because, unfortunately, most women or many, many women will live through some sort of domestic violence situation in their lifetime. And Blair Howard, her attorney, was correct that it was going to strike a chord with the juries, specifically the female jurors. And so they were pretty sure that they wanted to acquit. And I guess that a male juror asked that they bring in the knife because he wanted to see if it was possible, what kind of cuts this knife would make, what it would seem like. And he could not even get the knife to break his skin. Whoa. That's how dull this knife was. So he was like really pushing hard. And then I guess they passed it around and none of the jurors could even create the tiny little scratches that she had. And at that point, they were like, okay, well, clearly it didn't happen with this knife. There's no way. There was also some testimony about her like taking that knife away from him at some point and like keeping it in her truck. So it seemed like actually she had it. She went out, got it from her truck and tried to make it look like that and then like threw it in oh my God. the blood. They, at that point, when they cannot make that cut happen with that knife, now all of a sudden they were like, okay, wait a minute. She definitely was lying about this. So she's lying about this. What else is she going to lie about? What else is she lying of? So again, they don't necessarily 
not believe that she was abused or that he had threatened her, but they know that it did not happen the way she said it happened. And just based on that, they had to convict her. So the verdict was guilty, but it was not of murder. Self-defense. As Suzanne Cummings was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. So the penalty of this charge could land Suzanne in prison for up to 10 years. That's it. That's it. I guess if you're like a rich woman, that's like a lifetime. Well, she wasn't going to end up being in prison for 10 years, obviously, Andy. Suzanne was sentenced to 60 days in the county jail and given a $2,500 fine. $2,500? For a man's life. Wow, that's disgusting. I feel like you'd get more if you ran a stop sign and ran somebody over. Yeah. (sighs) According to Lisa Pulitzer's book, the heiress, after she got this extremely light sentence, then spoke to the media. She said, I would like to let you know how deeply appreciative I am. She whispered into the microphones. I feel very happy. You just killed someone. Like that's a tone deaf response. Then according to Lisa Pulitzer, friends of Roberto were understandably angered yeah by the verdict and they did nothing to hide their disappointment when they spoke to the media he wasn't the type of person who was portrayed in court Susie Warsham announced to one weekly newspaper Susie and her husband Travis had sat together in the last row of the gallery for much of the trial were just sick in Buenos Aires talk of the light sentence flooded the radio airwaves with contentious announcers ridiculing the Cummings verdict One of the radio hosts from Argentina said, I honestly thought the justice system in the United States was a model system, something to be admired. This shows how wrong I was. You would get a stronger ticket for a traffic violation than for killing an Argentinian. There you go. Yeah. And it gets even worse, Andy. The cell that Suzanne was remanded to usually held six women. That's like what it had the space for. But get this, they moved the five other inmates to different jails for Suzanne's sentence. So she had essentially an entire suite to herself. She was uh, the only one there. And she was allowed to receive unlimited phone calls and visits. And her sister and her mother would bring her whatever food she wanted. So she didn't have to eat the jail food. And then she was released after only 51 days due to good behavior. Well, Suzanne appears to have kept a low profile. I think she's still alive out there. She has not reoffended, at least. In 2003, Suzanne settled a wrongful death suit that would benefit Roberto's son with Margaret. The amount was undisclosed, but she had turned down a settlement for like $140,000 before. That's like publicly. nothing to her. I know, it's nothing. But So I think that he got more. So they were trying to go for something like $14 million. She had countered with 140000 Whatever they settled on is undisclosed. So we don't know. But it's somewhere between, I'm sure, $140,000 and a few million. I can't imagine they would get any more of than that. Lisa Pulitzer's book was called A Woman Scorned. So that's why I didn't tell you guys, but the book is A Woman Scorned by Lisa Pulitzer, which I believe makes me think that uh, Lisa Pulitzer was on the she was a woman scorned train, not an abused woman train. Yeah. But Judy Backrack, who interviewed Suzanne for Vanity Fair, says on the show Vanity Fair Confidential that she did believe that Roberto was abusive. So she did. She said that 
usually people who are guilty don't talk to reporters. And she said that Suzanne was very open with her and did not seem like she was hiding anything. But she did admit that Suzanne's sentence was very light due to her wealth and privilege. Yes. I think we can all agree on that. We can. And we can agree that it's very troubling that three women in Roberto's life reported some sort of aggression, even if two of those three women eventually recanted their statements. I don't think that that's abnormal for someone who's going through emotional or physical abuse either to recant. Exactly. Exactly. So we have to take everything with a grain of salt. But obviously, just Suzanne's story just never matched up. And if you ask my opinion, I think that this was a bad relationship on its way out. And it's entirely possible Roberto was potentially rude, very verbally abusive towards her. Maybe he made some cruel comments that morning. Like people say shitty things to each other when they're going through a breakup and they're kind of hammering out the details. But I do not think for a second that Suzanne's life was ever in danger. I think that she's snapped. I think that there's some class stuff going on here too. I think it was more like no poor South American guy is going to dump me or cheat on me or disrespect me Yeah, with maybe the way he was speaking to her. Because, you know, she did seem very affected by him saying like, you're a piece of shit woman or something and you're not going to talk to me like that. Like, I think she was like, what are you? And what am I? I'm a billionaire heiress. You're not going to speak to me that way. And, you know, her father had taught her how to shoot. Yeah. And she had learned a lot from that man. So... I think she just wasn't going to stand for it. She wasn't going to stand for that disrespect. In conclusion, I don't know, Andy, 24 cats or more than 24 cats is a red flag for me, dog. It is. Honestly, Jess, I think it still depends on the square footage. I'm just saying, unless you are actively running a cat rescue, a licensed cat rescue, I think... (laughs) 24 or more cats is just really pushing it. I don't know. Pushing it. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how many cats Andy can fit in her house. <laughs> I also think you should never trust anyone who doesn't tip. Ah, uh, 100%. Percent. That's the I'm biggest red flag. That's bigger red flag than the cat. A huge red flag. I actually have to go with you on that one. I have to go with you, even though I I shudder at the idea of 24 cats in my house. I have to say, I would rather live with 24 cats than be married to somebody who uh, doesn't tip and treat service people poorly. I agree. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up stealing all of your polo ponies. Meow, indeed. (laughs) Love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. 